0: Today on Pilgrim Radio's *His People*, Craig Borlace and here Bruce Hindmarsh on the story of John Newton and his famous song. And this song, I think, has come to be a kind of anthem to be
1: sung at times when we just really need uh, need grace. Sung after 9/11, sung after the Swiss Air 111 disaster, sung after the Oklahoma City bombing, sung at all these different times of tragedy when life is its very worst. People realize um, in the midst of
0: wretchedness, um, we need grace, we need mercy, we need forgiveness. Craig Burlace and Bruce Hindmarsh, next. The wonderful, moving song Amazing Grace is arguably the world's best-known hymn. Today we'll find out about its author, John Newton, and how God's Amazing Grace radically transformed his life. Our guests today are Dr. Bruce Heinmarsh, a professor at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada, and Craig Borlace, a ghostwriter and collaborator on many writing projects. He spoke to us from near Oxford, England. They're co-authors of Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton, and the Surprising Story Behind His Song. Bruce, I'd like to ask you the first question. How did John Newton and his life come to captivate you?
1: Well, I think it's a uh compelling story if there's anybody who had been through many dangers uh, toils and snares it was probably John Newton uh, in his life and um so I, um right away I mean 30 years ago when I um was beginning my doctoral work at Oxford I just read his story and it was deeply compelling and then as a historian I found that there was a huge massive archive that had really not been um you know, uh, gone into. And so it was a real privilege to kind of read through and, um, and I worked a lot on er, early on, on his theology and his ministry and his contribution to the evangelical awakening. But it's really in this project that I've returned with Craig to look at the whole of his life story, and to look at at the early years and the later years that I didn't uh, look at in the same kind of detail. And, uh, and really just uh, the, the human story. Of John
0: Newton, and I'm reminded just how compelling it really is, and what a redemptive story it is. And this, of course, is a special year for, by all accounts, the most famous hymn uh, ever, "Amazing Grace," written by John Newton. What is what is special about this year and that and that hymn?
1: Well, it's the uh, 250 year anniversary of the song "Amazing Grace." It was uh, January the first, 1773, when John Newton introduced this hymn in a quiet sort of market town in the English Midlands. He wrote it for a church service, a New Year's service, Mm. It's a chance to look back with his congregation and look forward how grace has led me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. And I'm sure he had no idea when he introduced that hymn of the future uh, story of the hymn and how it would expand in in the 20th century, how wide and deep it would go, uh, wide in terms of its popularity in the 1970s, it charted in the Billboard Top 40, Really? And, uh, literally a popular song, and uh, in the commercial marketplace and so on, but also how deep in times of tragedy. It's still astonishing to me, Bill, that when, when life is at its very worst and people experience horrifying loss, they sing a song that in its first stanza, thanks God for his grace. I think in a way it's become a song that it acknowledges the wretchedness of life, and um, I think it's become a prayer for grace. People realize the human condition that there's,
0: there's none of us that uh, is not in need of grace and mercy at some point in our lives. And uh, my other guest, Mr. Craig Borlase, uh, uh, Craig, you're talking to us from uh, England uh, today, and tell us how you and Bruce came to collaborate on Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton, and the surprising story behind his song?
2: Well, Bill, I'll start with a confession um, that I, when I first heard about the, the project, I didn't think it was a very good idea. Um, oh. And I a, <laughs> a mutual friend of ours, a wonderful guy called Charles Morris, um, who I'd written with before, um, and who's been a friend of Bruce's for some years. Um, yeah, he suggested that we, we meet and we talk about working together on a book. And my initial thought was like, oh, wow, about a song i mean that's that's tricky and a book about a song that's 250 years old that's even more complicated <laughs> and perhaps dull um but you know when i talked to bruce a little bit um and as you've heard already that bruce knows <laughs> so much about john Newton, but in a in a kind of deeply sort of spiritual way not just on a sort of an academic level um just a little bit of time spent talking to him it made me realize gosh there is a really strong human story um, it might be 250 years old, but it's very, very human. It's very real. It's a story of a young man who um, makes all kinds of mistakes. He appears to be remarkably unlikable. You know, everybody who, <laughs> who he spent time with seemed to dislike him <laughs> after a while. And he ended up in a really um, profoundly difficult, disturbing um challenging situation um he made some bad choices and from that low from that sort of prodigal moment of being you know with the metaphorical pigs god lifted him up and i think to me once i got a sense of that oh, that's a really um, interesting and also it's an applicable that's a relevant and a useful story
0: well, we're talking with Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh and Mr. Craig Borlase, uh, their co-authors of the new book, Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton, and the surprising story behind his song, of course, Amazing Grace, as they were just explaining, uh, was written uh, 250 years ago. Bruce, who was John Newton? I mean, uh, Craig gave us somewhat of an introduction, of course. Where do we begin tracing his, uh, his life?
1: He was one of the leading figures in the evangelical revival in, in England. He was a minister in the Anglican church and he became fairly well known as a hymn writer. There's a, a lot of hymns that made their way into sort of common usage from John Newton, like Amazing Grace. He was a preacher. He saw revival in his parish and they had to add a balcony to the church and all sorts of people came and um, he was um, a friend of the poet William Cooper, a well-known poet who suffered enormously. And uh, Newton was there with him when he descended into depression and so on. Uh, Newton was a friend and a counselor to the abolitionist William Wilberforce and joined him at the end of his life in, um, in the campaign against, um, against the slave trade. Um, so Newton was sort of well-known in all these sorts of ways, but perhaps most well-known for his story, which he wrote himself. Uh, it was called An Authentic Narrative, and it had one of those long sort of 18th century titles, but we call it The Authentic Narrative, written, um, when he was, I think, about 30 years of age, Mm. and, um, and he told his story quite vividly, and, uh, and his story is, um, is a kind of Uh, parable of grace like uh, Craig was saying it's a it's a prodigal story and it's like if anyone uh, if if Newton can experience mercy and forgiveness if he can climb out of the hole that he was in then perhaps there's mercy um, mercy for the rest of us so here he was a former slave trader who um, cries out to God for mercy it takes him some time to reckon with the extent of his complicity in uh in the vile slave trade uh but by the end of his life when he recognizes what he had been involved in that's some of the most moving part of the story for me revisiting this with craig is when he's about my age i'm uh, 60 he's just a little bit older than me when he comes to realize the full pretty really reckon with the full horror of what he had done as a young person and some of his remorse in old in his old age and his courage then to make a public confession and to contribute to the demolishing of the slave trade. I think it's quite quite moving. We, we see God's grace change somebody over the lifespan, over the whole of his life, and God was not done with him even in his 60s, um, but uh, all the way through. it um, I think it's uh, both a dramatic story and uh, finally quite a redemptive story.
0: What do we know, and it sounds like we do know a certain amount of his early life, his upbringing, his parents, Christian influences? What can either of you gentlemen tell us? We know quite a lot because he gave us quite a
1: lot of information. Uh, one of the things where Craig sort of pushed me in a sense, and Craig has never written a dull sentence in his life. <laughs> he tells a story vividly and write, has, has written this like a novel. Um, but it's quite poignant uh, that, you know, the, the kinds of things that happened to him as a young person, at uh, six years of age, his mother dies while his father's away at sea, and he he's all alone in the world. I think, uh, again, the way Craig writes forced me in a new way to reckon with what it felt like to be a six-year-old boy at that moment. What it felt like to fall uh, in love, uh, sort of punch drunk in love with a, a young woman, so much so that three times in a row in December, he overstayed and messed up plans that others had for his life. Uh, What was it like to be kidnapped at 18 and into the Navy and uh, into that brutal world? What was it like at 21 years of age to suffer near starvation, uh, bondage, abuse, and and really look like he was going to die far away from home, unloved? Uh, we, so, we, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of manuscripts and so on, and Craig has been brilliant at putting that together to tell the story in a way that gives the reader a front row seat.
0: Well, the book is Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton, and the surprising story behind his song, and I, I have to get to the song here in just a couple minutes, but uh, regarding slavery, the slave trade, uh, Bruce, a couple of very interesting points about John Newton's life. One is well-known that he was involved in the slave trade, very cruel slave trade. He wrote a lot about that. He was haunted by that. And I want to ask you about that, too. But there was a period in his life where he was actually a slave himself. Tell us about that and the chronology of of those two. So early on, I guess he'd be maybe 20 years of
1: age. Um, He had been, um, I call it kidnapped. He had been impressed into the Navy. It was kind of a legal kidnapping. And um, the conditions were fairly brutal. And he was exchanged out of the navy for, you know, as the the ship was on its way to a five year kind of tour of duty in the East Indies. But he um, he ended up getting traded for a merchant mariner, uh, and, he, and he found himself sort of literally descending, sort of metaphorically, and uh, and and actually down a ladder into the into the slave trade onto a slave ship on the Guinea coast of Africa for six months there working their way down the coast. And the end ends up on a chance. He made a lot of reckless decisions in his youth. Never deliberate, he said, just go for it. Mm-hmm. He ended up um, becoming essentially an apprentice to what they called a slave factor. That's like a wholesaler of slaves. Mm-hmm. And he ended up on this little island called Plantain Island, uh, sort of south of what would today be Freetown, I guess, in Sierra Leone. And he ended up on this tiny island, I think it's like I don't know, three, three miles long and, and um, just a tiny island. And, um, but the the situation turned where he ended up being abused. He ended up being, he was malarial. At some point, he had a fever, he, um, but he ended up himself being in in chains, his uh, master, and his black mistress, a woman that they know as PI, uh, began to mistrust him. And uh, he found himself in chains and shackles, the servant of slaves he said, there were slaves who had pity on him who helped to feed him, and so on. But it was the kind of the low point of his um experience to be uh, to find himself enslaved uh, near death, uh, far from home, and um, um, as kind of bottoming out and he reached that kind of um that low point. And uh, he always remembered that as kind of a, a low point in his experience. Um, there are many points when, as he tells his own story, he remembers quite often, like I should, have, I should be dead. I shouldn't still be here. And just the fact that God preserved his life, he realized was such a um, was was such a remarkable thing. And then the one to whom, you know, for many of us, you know, many people have had terrible things that have happened to them mm-hmm. for which they need grace. But then Newton becomes complicit. And the, the one who was enslaved becomes a slave trader. And then then it, he's going to need grace for the terrible things, not only that had happened to him, but for the things that he did. And so even, even having sunk that low, that did not lead him to just realize, okay, well, obviously slavery is, is wrong. And it's hard for us to appreciate today how widely this was accepted and uh, that he could be blind like that and that it would take time for him to... Um, to awaken, um, really, with the rest of um, the British public in the 1780s. But that was a low point for him. He knew what it was to be in bondage and to be near death, to be near starvation, um,
0: uh, to have a a malarial fever that nearly took his life. So there's many points here of of connection. He, He was obviously released from his slavery. He became involved in the slave trade. I'm... Unfortunately, because of time, having to skip over some some aspects of this story. But how long was he involved in the slave trade, in terms of bringing uh, enslaved people to five or six years? Five or six years, 1749 to um,
1: 1754. One uh, voyage as first mate,
0: and three as a captain of a slave ship. And he witnessed really incredible cruelty for. Those of us, uh, some of it's recorded in the book, but, uh, yeah. and he participated to some extent in it. Oh, he he
1: did. He he said, and he talked about this later, and he gave evidence to the Privy Council and the House Select Committee, and he said he thought he was like a jailer, and he, he didn't want to use, he said, more sort of violence or more um, uh, force than was necessary to keep everyone safe. But there's no question he was involved, and he was an agent of uh of, of tremendous cruelty and saw people die on his watch and so on and in the middle passage and and all the rest of it and um he later talked about his heart shuddering when he realized what he had been involved in and um when there's you know when he a letter that uh, craig craig made a uh, good use of in 1788 to an abolitionist where he described really the full extent of some of the tortures he had witnessed Uh, There's a line that I find quite moving, Bill. He said, I hope God has forgiven me, but I ought to walk softly all my days in remembrance of what I have been and what I have done, you know? And how wonderful that he lived long enough to really come to terms with this, to face it, and then to publicly take a stand and seek to absolutely demolish the system that he had been an active agent in, that he lived long enough to encourage wilberforce to give legal evidence you know to the house select committees to write one of the most important tracks against the slave trade and one of the things craig noticed is he was doing all of this while his wife had cancer and his wife was dying and that's another part of the human sort of uh, element to this story that he uh, he stepped out like that at a moment where he um, you know his life
0: um at, a, at an intimate level um there was so much pain and either gentleman, how did he? What were the circumstances of his coming to Christ, and and what was the, in in a sense, the the residue of his upbringing? Even though his mother died when he was very young, there was still some bit of her teaching left, right, in his heart.
2: So the the coming to Christ was it was beautifully made for TV. You know, it was uh, it's a great part of the story. He was rescued from that island. Um, where he'd been held as a kind of a slave. Yeah, his uh, he was uh, on the way back. His father had, 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 had received a letter from him and sent rescue. He was on his way back. He was crossing the Atlantic and there was a storm. And uh, having been sort of reverting back to the original sort of annoying, sort of um, slightly irksome character that he'd been for much of his life when he been on ships, he um, found himself in the middle of the storm calling or praying, saying, if God doesn't help us, then we're done for. And he was shocked that, gosh, hang on, I just called out to God. You know, I'm assuming that God's going to save us. And that really um that really kind of set him. Uh it sort it of was the one eighty and it turned him back. But it wasn't as if that was then suddenly that you know the clouds parted and suddenly he's now a um a full blown practicing, you know, God loving Christian again. That was even before he was a slave trader. But Bruce, what didn't you say about, yeah, some of the legacy of his childhood? It is
1: like that was the moment when there was a crack in his hardened exterior. And he cried out for God for mercy. And he thought, oh, well, how can there be mercy for me? But um, but it was on the next voyage when he had even a deeper sense of um, despair. Because he said he went like a dog to back with vomit. And he, he had to make, he had to, come to the end of himself in a kind of self despairing faith in Christ and just make a deeper surrender and he would sort of have considered in a sense there's the storm and then there's if you like the still small voice and uh he he where he would describe that his as his more evangelical conversion I need God to do for me what I can't do for myself but as Craig is saying and I think the story we're trying to tell in the book we let the reader feel the discomfort of the fact that he has genuinely come to Christ uh but then for several years he's still involved in the slave trade and it's like two tectonic plates are overlapping and you feel the tension of that like we can just feel that and we want the reader to feel how uncomfortable that is partly because we need to realize how easily we can be deceived that we can be self-deceived um and um and it's 20 years later, when he, uh, long after he's left the slave trade, that he writes to him, Amazing Grace. God has worked in his life. He's become a pastor. There are some hints that are even coming out in the scholarship now that fairly early, he did develop some anti-slavery sentiment and may have contributed to some of the anti-slavery um, uh, writings that were going on. Um, but, you know, he was a changed man. He was a godly minister. He was a wise counselor. He was a powerful preacher. And then it's um, it's about 20 years later that he then actually becomes a courageous abolitionist. So that's the arc. And what we hope what the reader sees is that conversion isn't just sort of one and done. Like uh, Craig says, the clouds part and everything is all good. Uh, but it actually, um, it's the closer you get to the light, the more impurities show up and you keep walking toward the light, and you allow yourself to be exposed to the light of God's grace, God's amazing grace,
0: and He continues to change us all the way to the end. In the song Amazing Grace, the hymn Amazing Grace, how was it initially received when it was released, and what is it about that hymn, the message, which resonates with believer and non-believer in mm-hmm. times of tragedy, in times of sorrow. Yeah, it's amazing um, the, that the hymn has gone so deep,
1: as we talked about at the beginning. It, um, when it was initially sung, uh, initially kind of released, as it were. Um, you know, it was for a parish congregation, and a few years later, it gets published in a hymn book. It maybe gets picked up in a few other hymn books, and it's one hymn among many, one sort of good hymn among many in an age of Charles Wesley and other great sort of hymn writers. And then it almost goes out of common usage in Britain, until the 1950s. And Mm -hmm. where it gets picked up is in America. In 1829, it finds its tune, because originally, hymns didn't necessarily have, they weren't necessarily linked to a particular tune. But it finds its tune uh, that we know today. And I think part of what happened is that you know it's always a mystery how, you know, how, what is it the lyrics? Is it the music? Is it the, somehow the combination of these two? And it becomes um, quite popular uh, on the American frontier in camp meetings and so on, and then it it, it moves into the commercial marketplace in the 19. 19- late 1940s, early 1950s, the post-war period, hmm. with Mahalia Jackson's uh, amazing version for Apollo Records. And then it gets picked up by others, Judy Collins in the 1960s and 70s, you know, Vietnam protests and so on. It becomes like a protest song. It becomes a folk song in the late 60s, early 70s. It gets picked up and played on bagpipes by the Royal Scotch Dragoon guards in the 1970s. and and then is associated with bagpipes ever since. And it kind of marches its way along. But I think the other question you're asking, Bill, is not just how it became popular, but how it ended up going so deep. And it's still a bit of a mystery to me, but I think my my hunch is, it's the fact that there's something about this sense that universally there isn't any one of us that doesn't come to a point in our lives where we realize we need grace we need mercy, we need kindness, and that uh, the human condition, as beautiful as it is, is so flawed that we need grace. And this song, I think, has come to be a kind of anthem to be sung at times when we just really need uh, need grace, sung after 9-11, sung after the Swiss Air 111 disaster, sung after the Oklahoma City bombing, sung at all these different times of tragedy when life is its very worst people realize um in the midst of wretchedness um we need grace we need mercy we need forgiveness
0: his i i don't know if they were his last words but some of his last words on his deathbed kind of summed up all of this what you've just been explaining kind of summed up his life at least in his mind but really in in a sense it sums up all of our lives yeah he said my memory is nearly gone He's
1: 82 years of age, but I remember two things, that I am
0: a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Haven is producing a documentary on John Newton and on on this hymn. Can either of you gentlemen tell us a little bit about what's what's planned there? I mean, there have been other, for example, there was the movie Amazing Grace some years ago, which focused, of course, primarily on Wil, William Wilberforce and to a lesser degree on John Newton. but do you know a little bit about the content of this movie how we might uh, what we might look forward to
1: Greg and I are both involved in writing the script and I've been involved in sort of presenting for this documentary with a lot of reenactments but the you know the line that the the one of the last things we heard Newton say that I just quoted about I remember two things um we wrote that into the script and I can tell you how powerful it was. We were on the Isle of Man filming John Reese Davies, a tremendous actor who was in Lord of the Rings and Raiders of the Lost Ark. To hear him, in a sense, reauthor that and to hear him uh, put all his sort of skill into um, portraying these poignant moments for the old John Newton were just amazing. I think it's going to be a wonderful film. It'll be it'll tell the story not just of um, John Newton's life and um, but also um, it'll also be a biography of the hymn itself and there's a lot of music the kingdom choir uh, sings and i can tell you when we heard them sing in only under the pulpit of a former slave trader is one of the world's leading black gospel choirs singing with such unbelievable joy singing amazing grace i can tell you the whole crew christians non-christians didn't matter the whole crew there wasn't a dry eye Uh, listening to this, um, this performance. So um, look forward to it at the, uh, I think toward the end of this calendar year, um, early next year. uh, Hopefully we'll, um, that film will be out
0: and we'll get uh, one more crack at Amazing Grace. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guests, Dr. Bruce Heinmarsh, a professor at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada, and Craig Borlace, a ghostwriter and collaborator living near Oxford, England. They're co-authors of Amazing Grace, the life of John Newton, and the surprising story behind his song. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Rachel Ruth Lots wright on preparing to meet Jesus, either when he returns or when we die and go to be with Him.
2: And it was at that moment that I felt the finger of God I, it just go across my heart, and all of a sudden the blood came back to my body, and I was able to open my eyes. And and I knew, I even said in the room, I was like, you don't know Jesus, you do too, because He just saved my life. And they rushed me off to the OR and and um, put massive stents in my heart. and. Um, and so I shouldn't I shouldn't be here except that God allowed me to live and, and to bring this message really because we could meet him today. You know, we could die. We're not promised tomorrow.
0: Coming up tomorrow at this same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.